Today on the Matt Wall Show, we've talked before about how the DEI agenda is infecting the airline industry and putting all of our lives in jeopardy. It turns out the rot is much worse and goes much deeper than you know or want to know. Also, Cori Bush introduces a resolution so that black Americans can get the reparations they are quote-unquote owed. The newest consumer product that people are lining up and camping out overnight for is a cup. Yes, just a cup. And degenerate rapper Lil Nas X makes another desperate bid for attention, this time by portraying himself as Jesus Christ. All of that and more today on The Matt Walsh Show. Last year, because of you, Preborn's network of clinics saved over 58,000 babies. Thanks to you uh, and everyone who made this possible. We came down here to Jacksonville with nothing, just the clothes on our back, and I knew I had to change, and it was time to change. So I was just getting on my feet, and I met someone, and I got pregnant, and I wasn't ready. How am I going to raise a baby? And I barely can take care of my daughter and myself right now. I Googled abortions, and I scheduled an appointment thinking it was an abortion clinic. They did my first ultrasound. Seeing the, the ultrasound, it impacted me to the point to where I broke down crying. The nurse reminded me that it was a blessing from God. I was thinking about if I wanted to keep the baby or not. When I was at the clinic, after they told me how far along I was and that the baby had a heartbeat, I cried and they gave me a minute by myself in the room. I broke down and I prayed to God. I asked the Lord to, when I walk out of those doors, to just give me the strength to be able to go through the pregnancy. I made my decision at that time. Women's Center called me out of the blue and said that they had a lot of stuff for me and they would like for me to come in. They gave me cribs and diapers and so much stuff. It's amazing. It touches my heart. It makes me feel special. It makes me feel like there's people in the world that does care. They gave me hope, the strength to believe in myself that I could do it. Treasure I chose because I know that she was a gift from God and she's just gonna be a treasure. I'm super grateful that I'm able to go down this journey with my daughter and I'm just super glad that I didn't have an abortion. I've learned how to trust God, how to listen to God and to trust myself and to do the right thing and not be selfish. It feels amazing. When Antoinette found out she was pregnant, she was in a bad place. She didn't know uh, how she could raise her child on her own. She searched for an abortion clinic, but God led her to a pre-born clinic where she was uh, introduced to her baby via ultrasound. When she saw her baby and uh, heard her heartbeat, she broke down crying, and the nurse reminded her that a child is a blessing. Antoinette chose life that day. Preborn saves 200 babies each and every day. For just $28 a month, you can sponsor an ultrasound and help save a life. When a mother sees her baby on an ultrasound and hears his heartbeat, she's twice as likely to choose life. Let's join together and help mothers choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 or visit preborn.com slash Matt. That's preborn.com slash Matt.
In December of 2022, a Boeing 777 operated by United Airlines took off from Hawaii in heavy rain. And about a minute into the flight, the aircraft plummeted towards the ocean. It came just 750 feet from hitting the water at high speed, which almost certainly would have killed all 280 people on board. In the end, the pilots saved the aircraft by just a matter of seconds. Now, for more than two months, no one heard about this incident. It was as if it had never happened. And by the time the mainstream news uh, reports began appearing in February, more than two months later, United assured the public that the FAA had been notified and that an investigation would be forthcoming. Watch. Alrighty, scary moments like this, though, for some passengers on a United flight out of Hawaii. Just moments after takeoff, the plane took a steep nosedive, coming within 800 feet of the ocean's surface. Mm. This happened December 18th. Flight tracking data shows the Boeing 777 took off from Maui in a huge storm. You can see there climbed to 2,200 feet, then descended at 8,600 feet per minute towards the water. Uh, a passenger told CNN it felt like a roller coaster and that people were screaming on board. Oh my goodness. The pilots, yeah. Yeah, the pilots recovered from the nosedive and then safely made the trip to San Francisco. Wow. United says a formal report was filed with the FAA. The pilots then received additional training. The whole incident lasted around 45 seconds. That's a long flight after something like that happens on takeout, takeoff. Now, notice how there, there's not much curiosity from the news anchor there about why this incident took so long for the airline to disclose to the public is the kind of thing that you'd like to think we'd hear about right, right away. There's also not much of an explanation about what happened exactly. It's implied that the pilots may have made a mistake because they're getting more training. But what mistake did they make exactly? Well, late last year, we got something of an official answer. It turns out that according to the NTSB, the captain called for the flaps to be retracted to the five-degree setting, which is a normal setting for takeoff. But the first officer thought the captain had called for a 15-degree setting, so he selected that one, which was the wrong one. And that misunderstanding caused a major problem because the plane was going far too fast for that flap setting. To avoid damaging the plane, the captain started to slow the aircraft while he tried to diagnose the problem. Instead of realizing his mistake, the first officer suggested that maybe the instruments were malfunctioning and the two pilots continued to kind of troubleshoot the problem. In the process, they became disoriented as the plane quickly lost altitude. Uh, the pilot's confusion continued until the plane blared an alarm telling them that they were about to die if they didn't apply maximum power and pull up, and they did. And, uh, and fortunately, nobody was harmed. Incredibly, both pilots of the flight are still employed by United Airlines, we're told. They nearly killed everybody on board through their incompetence, but that's not disqualifying, apparently. Beyond some basic information about their flying experience, we still don't know much about those two pilots. For example, we know that the first officer has a total of 5,300 hours of flying experience, which is respectable for his position. But at the time of the incident, he only had 120 hours in the Boeing 777. And according to a report by Tucker Carlson last year, which cited an anonymous source at United shortly after this near catastrophe took place, this first officer was a new hire at the airline. Could that lack of experience have played a role? And more to the point, could either of the pilots' identities have played a role in their hiring or the airline's refusal to terminate them after they almost steered a passenger jet into the ocean? We don't know. We're not allowed to know because the federal government and the airlines don't want us to know any more information about the identity of these pilots or any of their pilots who are involved in near disasters or anything else about what actually happened. 
There is an ongoing information blackout about these kinds of events, and it's, it's deliberate. But in their various public statements and press releases, United Airlines has made it very clear that they are mainly interested in hiring pilots on the basis of skin color and gender rather than competence. In fact, they participated in a Vice documentary back in 2022, um, United did, about their DEI initiatives. Uh, watch. So we are in a plane right now. I'm about to take off with a student from United's new Aviate Academy. A bit nervous, but let's do this. Purefoy is training to become a pilot with United Airlines, which became the first major airline to launch its own flight school at the beginning of this year. But United is making another push. It said half of its recruits are going to be women or people of color, a pretty ambitious goal for airline pilots who are 93% white and 95% male. Black women make up less than 1% of the pilot industry. I have a confession, guys. I have never Watch seen a black woman fly a plane. What made you want to become a pilot? So I was a flight attendant for three years on a major U.S. airline, and I absolutely loved it. So a couple of years ago, United decided that 50% of its new pilot recruits are going to be women or people of color, and they're promoting flight attendants to make that happen. Later on in that Vice documentary, it suggested that the, the point of this initiative is to alleviate the pilot shortage. Well, how is that going? A few days ago, the conservative commentator Ashley St. Clair posed a, a few questions to United based on some information that she had received, and, and here's what she wrote. Quote, on July 29th, the United plane was nearly totaled after a hard landing. Who was flying that aircraft? Was the co-pilot a former flight attendant who was fired and then rehired through United's DEI program despite being on a list to not return to United? Am I correct that this individual failed multiple trainings, including simulator training? Am I also correct that United has covered up this DEI disaster and many others? That's the question she posed again from based on insider information that she had received. Now, United didn't reply, which you may have noticed is something of a pattern. Uh, no one thinks we deserve to know anything about what's going on in the cockpits of the planes that we are flying in. You're just supposed to assume that everything's fine and that the flight attendants are transforming into master pilots at United's training academy. But the more you look into the specifics of United's diversity initiatives, the less solid that assumption seems to be. It turns out that United partners with several historically black colleges and universities, or HBCUs, as a way of recruiting pilots. One of the uh, popular statistics-focused accounts on X, which uses the name IO, noticed that uh, two of the schools that United has decided to team up with, which is uh, Delaware State and Elizabeth City State University, are, quote, in the bottom 2% of all undergraduate institutions in the United States. The bottom 2% is where they're finding their pilots. Elizabeth State, the account noted, uh, quote, had the distinction in the 1980s of being the only university in which the average SAT math score was lower than that score which would have been produced if a person had guessed B on all multiple choice questions on the test. That's a pretty sobering reality, especially if you plan on flying United anytime soon. Now, to be fair to United, they don't just recruit from HBCUs with no standards. Uh, as a writer who goes by the pseudonym Peachy Keenan found, United also recruits from an organization called Sisters of the Skies. Yes, that is an organization that sends pilots to United Airlines, and their acronym is literally SOS. At least you can rest assured that they have a sense of humor at United as your plane is plummeting to the ground. Maybe that will give you a little bit of a laugh. Um, 
and it gets better. Watch. Jada Williamson's always dreamed of sitting in the cockpit and calling the shots. What I like about flying is I, like, you get to see different things you've never seen. But that dream of a career in aviation is a rare one for black girls to accomplish. With fewer than 1% of pilots, women of color. It was tough, I won't lie, because there was no one that looked like me. So now gone. Captain Teresa Claiborne is part of a group of trailblazing black women pilots hoping to increase those numbers. We believe if they see it, they can be it. She was the first black female pilot in the U.S. Air Force and is president of Sisters of the Skies. She is now a United Airlines pilot. Why do you think more black women aren't becoming pilots? It's extremely expensive. I mean, it takes upwards of $100,000 to get your licensing to fly. So if our young ladies are not seeing it, if their parents don't have the funding for it, then it's not going to happen. Well, that's inspirational. If they can see it, they can be it. You know, that's the kind of thing. If you're, in a, if you're flying a plane, you know, that, that's, that's, that's what you want out of your pilot, to know that... Uh, well, they, they saw it, at least. That's the qualification that they, they, that they uh, fall into, that they, they saw it and they became it. Um, now, again, this is an organization that's training the pilots that are flying commercial aircraft. And this isn't training, really. It's, it's like a kindergarten classroom and with, these, with these vapid self-help slogans and inspirational slogans. At no point are these people concerned about safety or competence. They want to put black women in the cockpit because they want to inspire more black women, and that makes them feel good, um, not because they, they, they think they're getting smarter or better pilots. Because if you want to get smarter or better pilots, then that's all you're concerned with. You just go looking for pilots who fit these qualifications regardless of what they look like. If they happen to be a black woman, then great. If it ends up that you have no black women pilots, then that is also great because if you're just Hiring and recruiting based on merit, then whoever's in there is the best for the job, and it's fantastic. And this is not just some PR stunt. United is actually falling through on this. According to United's latest corporate diversity report, of the 51 students that graduated from United's first class of pilots, quote, nearly 80% were women or people of color. So they vastly exceeded their target of 50%. And you can just decide for yourself whether they got to that 80% figure because they happen, it just so happened that all of the most qualified, almost all the most qualified people were women or people of color. I mean, you, you, if you believe that, then fine. They've almost completely eliminated uh, white men in their training classes. And, and we're led to believe that this is progress. Meanwhile, pay no attention to the planes plummeting towards the ocean or smashing into the runway, which is happening right now. To be clear, this is a problem that extends far beyond United Airlines. I mean, they're maybe the most vocal about their DEI practices, but every airline does. As a few years ago, in February of 2019, an Amazon Air cargo plane, a Boeing 767 operated by a contractor called Atlas Air, plummeted into the Trinity Bay near Houston. Um, now, what was the reason for that crash? Well, the first officer, Conrad Aska, accidentally pressed a button, giving the plane a massive jolt and thrust, which pitched the nose up. And instead of reacting calmly to the situation, as trained good pilots are supposed to do. He panicked and he forced the control column all the way down. The plane broke through the clouds and disintegrated on impact with the water. Now, Conrad Aska never should have been flying that plane. Prior to joining Atlas Air and Amazon, he had worked for seven different airlines where he developed a reputation for pressing random buttons in emergencies. He would always panic in the simulator and just 
lose all situational awareness and start pressing buttons. But airlines kept putting him in the cockpit anyway. And that's why in its final report on the crash, the NTSB cited, quote, systemic deficiencies in the aviation industry's selection and performance measurement practices, which failed to address the first officer's aptitude-related deficiencies and maladaptive stress response. Now, what explains those systemic deficiencies? Well, we can't say for sure. We do know that Conrad Aska was born in the Caribbean nation of Antigua. Uh, he was a black man which certainly checks some diversity boxes. And we also know that Atlas Air's website is full of platitudes about the importance of hiring candidates based on certain characteristics like their race and gender. So we can come to some unauthorized theories here about why Conrad Aska was flying that plane. And none of them are very encouraging. Now, this is not to single out Amazon or United or, or Atlas. This kind of diversity hiring is endemic in the aviation industry. Keenan says that she's received several messages from pilots warning her of, uh, of this danger in recent days. So here's one uh, anonymous message that she posted, quote, Every airline has an informal pilot assignment program that makes sure their unfireable DEI problem children are always paired with adult supervision. These programs are maintained by aging boomers who are immune to the Kool-Aid, as these guys retire, every flight will be a roll of the dice. Now, remember back, we just talked about that flight that almost crashed into the ocean. And you had the one person who didn't know what they were doing and pressed the wrong button. And then the other guy that's trying to figure out, is that, is that one of those situations? Was this a babysitting mission? We don't know. This rampant DEI mandate doesn't just extend to airlines either. A few weeks ago on the show, when I predicted that we're due for a major air disaster soon, I talked mainly about DEI-based hiring and air traffic control. There's also a push to diversify the ranks of companies that manufacture and install various airline parts. And that includes companies like Spirit Aerosystems, which is uh, no relation to Spirit Airlines, which manufactured that door that blew out on the Alaska Airlines flight over, the, over uh, Portland the other day. Uh, like United and Atlas Air, Spirit Aerosystems' website is full of DEI propaganda. In fact, just days before the door blew out on the plane, Spirit executives were posting eagerly on LinkedIn about their next big diversity event. Meanwhile, the company knew they had more serious problems. Shortly before the door fell off of a passenger plane mid-flight, Spirit Aerosystems was hit with a class action lawsuit in federal court. And in the lawsuit, investors alleged that Spirit was aware of the systemic defects in their products, but ignored them and falsified documents to hide them. In one instance, the lawsuit alleged, quote, Auditors repeatedly found torque wrenches in mechanics toolboxes that were not properly calibrated. This was a potentially serious problem as a torque wrench that is out of calibration may not torque fasteners to the correct levels, resulting in over-tightening or under-tightening that could threaten the structural integrity of the parts in question. But the mechanics didn't want to comply with the audit. According to the lawsuit, quote, some mechanics would not even let auditors take such out-of-calibration tools, locking toolboxes or yanking them back out of the auditor's hands to prevent the audit. Now, obviously, these accusations are even remotely true. They reveal some very concerning problems at a company that makes critical components for the planes that you are flying in. So how did things get so bad? Well, it turns out that according to the lawsuit, Spirit fired roughly 50% of its workforce in response to the COVID lockdowns. They terminated many experienced mechanics, quote unquote, in response to the economic consequences of those shutdowns, according to the suit. Well, when they were doing that, how did Spirit decide who to retain 
after these unnecessary lockdowns? How did they decide who to hire after the lockdowns ended? Why did they keep the engineers who apparently don't understand how to calibrate their torque wrenches? If you take Spirit Air Systems at its word, they probably hired a bunch of diverse mechanics. That's what all their marketing materials and investor pitches dictate. But the truth is, at this point, we can't be more specific than that. Is it possible that a crack team of mechanics manufactured the doors on all of these United and Alaska airplanes? As of now, yes, it is. Maybe the fault lies not with Spirit, but with Boeing, which has been in decline ever since it made the decision to outsource key elements of its business to overseas programmers and penny pinchers in Chicago. Maybe Boeing installed the door improperly. We don't know. But at a certain point, we're entitled to some answers. We shouldn't have to guess or speculate about this. We should know the qualifications and the identities of the people manufacturing and installing these airplane doors, just like we should know the qualifications and identities of the United pilots who are skimming the water with Boeing passenger jets. We shouldn't have any doubts about their competence. You know, we're the ones who just funded the bailouts for all these companies. We're the ones risking our lives when we board these planes. And yes, the situation is that dire. Last night, I put out a general invitation to um, commercial airline pilots to message me anonymously if they prefer, which of course most of them do, to tell me their firsthand experience of how DEI is impacting their profession. And I'm still going through all the messages. I received a lot of them, a lot. But what I can tell you is that as I sit here today, after reading everything that I've read, I am not at all eager to ever board a plane again. I mean, the airline industry is in the process of actively making itself less competent and less reliable. And the pilots themselves will tell you that if they're in an environment where they can say without getting fired. When it comes to the pilots, you know, the, the old guard, the masters of their profession who were hired and promoted based on their skill alone, they are still mostly in control. But, but that is changing. And meanwhile, the airline industry is hiding the truth and lying about the dangers we face. Like the COVID cultists who wrecked the economy, the DEI cultists desperately don't want you thinking about the downstream effects of their ideology. And as a result, every time an airplane takes off in this country, we are getting closer and closer to discovering those downstream effects the hard way. Now let's get to our five headlines. Put some prep in your step with Good Rancher's New Year New Meat Special. Delicious, safe, and convenient meal prep is just one box away. 2024 is your year to ditch the mystery of the meat aisle and get American meat delivered right to your door instead. When you subscribe to any box of Good Ranchers, they'll add over two pounds of pre-trimmed, better-than-organic chicken breasts to your order for free. Not once, not twice, but every order for an entire year. Good Ranchers chicken will change what you know about chicken. It's pasture-raised given zero antibiotics or vaccines. It's so tender and juicy, you won't believe it's the same meat you've been eating most of your life. Stock your fridge with easy-to-prepare, clean, delicious meat all year long. Not sure which box to choose? We'll try their brand-new Weekly Essentials box full of pre-trimmed beef and uh, chicken as well that helps you uh, meal prep so you can save time without sacrificing flavor. Go to GoodRanchers.com, use my code WALSH to enjoy free chicken in 2024, plus an additional $20 off your first order Change the way that you buy meat by switching to Good Ranchers. Subscribe today and use my code WALLS to claim over $200 in free chicken and New Year savings. GoodRanchers.com. American meat delivered.
Speaking of uh, DEI hires, uh, Representative Cori Bush um, was uh, talking about her reparations plan yesterday. Daily Wire has a report. Representative Cori Bush got a virtual earful in response to her latest demands for reparations, in which she claimed that black Americans were owed restitution for the damages wrought by slavery, Jim Crow laws, and other policies. Bush took to X to outline her grievances and announced that she had put forth a resolution designed to address them. Quote, our country owes, owes a debt to the descendants of enslaved black people, not just for slavery, but for what followed, like black codes redlining Jim Crow and mass incarceration. That's why I introduced my Reparations Now resolution. Uh, this country has an obligation. Critics questioned Bush's knowledge and understanding of history, noting that every one of the policies she had taken issue with had been authored, supported, and even championed by her own party, the Democrats. Um, all Democrat policies, radio host Dana Lash pointed out, I'm totally for your party making amends for what it did, including to indigenous Americans when they sent them on the Democrat genocide trail. Okay, uh, so some of the uh, Dems are the real racist stuff, which, which to me is by far not the most compelling response to, uh, to, the, to the claim that we should have reparations. Um, but if you look at the, the text of the resolution, just reading a little bit here, because it gets into some of the specifics about what exactly she's uh, calling for, and the other representatives, and there are several of them who signed on to this resolution, uh, it says, recognizing that the United States has a moral and legal obligation to provide reparations for the enslavement of Africans and its lasting harm on the lives of millions of black people in the United States. Whereas black people are and always have been human beings, yet the federal government has historically failed to recognize our dignity and humanity, uh, blah, 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 so on and so forth, historical sins. Uh, then we get to the numbers. Whereas financial reparations must be paid by the federal government for an amount that respected economists have estimated totals at minimum at $14 trillion, uh, $100,000 million, but yeah, trillion, to eliminate the racial wealth gap that currently exists between black and white Americans. Okay, so only $14 trillion. What's $14 trillion between friends? Um, and, and by the way, uh, why should it be $14 trillion? Well, because uh, economists have said so. And which economists? Well, respected ones. Respected economists have said that we should pay $14 trillion. Well, okay, that's... That's all we need to know. Uh, whereas scholars have estimated the United States benefited from 22 million hours of forced labor between 1619 and the end of slavery in 1865, which can be valued at $97 trillion today. Whereas if the United States closed racial gap, gaps for black people in the areas of housing, education, wages, and investment 20 years ago, $16 trillion could have been added to the economy. So we're throwing around a lot of figures here. $14 trillion, 22 million hours, $97 trillion. Um, and again, if you're wondering where these numbers come from or anything, don't worry about it. Economists have said so. The, the experts and scholars and economists who are all respected have said that these are the numbers. And so that's it. What else is there to talk about? You know, I, I look at this kind of thing and I go back to that phrase, um, this country owes a debt to black people. Now, putting aside all of the many moral and logical and legal problems with reparations, you know, the fact that you're allowing people to cash in on suffering that they themselves did not personally experience, the fact that you are penalizing and stealing from people who did not commit this historical sin or have anything to do with it, nor did they know anyone who committed it, nor did their parents or their grandparents commit it. Uh, the fact that plenty of black people 
uh, themselves in this country are, are not even descendants of slaves, uh, just as plenty of, dis- uh, of white people are not descendants of slave owners. The fact that if you go back far enough, every black person in this country is also likely a descendant of slave traders and slave owners themselves. And every white person is descended either from slaves or from people who suffered similar forms of oppression because slavery and oppression are global phenomena stretching back thousands of years. And so everybody um, with, with maybe very few exceptions can tie them, can, can, can say that they were, uh, that can trace their bloodline back to those sorts of things. But leaving all that aside, it is just poisonous to promote this idea that you are owed something just by virtue of your mere existence. Um, we have come a long way from ask not what your country can do for you. Now it's demand what your country owes you. Except that this country does not owe a damned thing to black people or to white people or to anyone else. At least it doesn't owe, I guess we, we should stipulate there, the country doesn't owe uh, anything special to you or to anyone else based on your skin color or any other demographic fact about you. Uh, now, we are entitled to our legal rights. We're entitled to having our basic human dignity respected. We're entitled to the basic protection of the law. We're entitled to um, we're entitled to the sovereignty of our country, the protection of our borders. We are owed that as American citizens. Uh, the government specifically owes that to us. It's, it's their job to uh, provide that. And these are things that we are collectively supposed to have by virtue of being Americans and, and of being human beings. Like, you're, again, your human dignity should be respected because you're a human. But even then, even in those cases, owed is, uh, is, is not the word that I would use because owed carries too much baggage. And when you talk about owed, it quickly becomes the childish, ridiculous, spoiled entitlement of somebody like Cori Bush. And at any rate, beyond these basic legal rights and so forth, beyond that, you know, what, there's that category. And then once you get outside of that category, you're not entitled to anything. If you want something, great. We all want things. Go get it. Go earn it. Don't tell me that you're owed it. I don't give a damn what you think you're owed. The world it cares even less. I mean, you can stand outside at night and shout into the universe about what you think it owes you. It doesn't matter because the universe is going to look back at you uh, totally indifferent. And if you're a black person and you want whatever, whatever amount you think that should be given in reparations, if you want that amount, well, then go work and go find a way to earn that amount. Go get your own reparations. It's just the most toxic thing, the most untenable situation is to have a bunch of people in this country who uh, are, are sitting around waiting for what they're owed. And this is what we have, not just when it comes to reparations, but in, in general. This is the mentality that's been inculcated in entire generations of people. So you have a bunch of people who've never done anything, have never achieved anything, have never really worked for anything or earned anything in their lives, and they're sitting around on their useless asses and crying about what they're owed. You, you know, we can't have a functional country with people like that. And also, by the way, you, 
you cannot be a happy person in life if that's the way you operate. If you spend every day thinking about what you're owed, you're not going to be a happy, well-adjusted, and certainly not a successful person. All right. Fox News has uh, this story. Famed radio host Howard Stern, who has voiced concerns about getting COVID-19 for years and was absent from a show last week, announced Monday that he had finally contracted the virus. Uh, Stern told listeners, we were supposed to be back last week. We weren't because I got COVID-19. Stern has regularly expressed his fear of COVID, admitting that it has gotten him into fights with his wife because he's paranoid and neurotic, especially when it comes to the virus. Stern, who turned 70 this week, said that he had never felt that sick before and credited being vaccinated for not making him feel worse. Uh, so he got it. He got it. And it was, and according to him, it was really bad. But uh, thank God for the vaccine, because otherwise he would have gotten it and it would have been bad. I mean, the exact same thing would have happened. Um, he said, I just want to announce something. COVID is really bad. You don't want COVID. O-F, he says. So this is just a funny story because Howard Stern has been vaxxed and boosted, like I think like eight times. Uh, I don't even think that's a, an exaggeration. And he's been hiding in his house for three years. And, uh, and then he got it anyway. And my favorite part maybe is this guy announcing that COVID is really bad and you don't want this. Let me tell you guys. You heard, of the, you heard about this COVID thing? Have you heard about it? You don't want it. Trust me. Like, as if we haven't all already had it. You know, we, we know what COVID is, okay? It, and, it, and it really isn't that bad, but especially now, it's it's literally just a cold. It's a head cold. Who's, how would you, I, I think it's funny now when I when I hear, even when I hear anyone say, oh, I, I got I had COVID last week. How do you even know that you had COVID? Are you still testing? Are you still going to Walgreens and getting tests to find out if you have COVID? Why? Why do you need to know? What difference does it make? You have a cold. Like, what do you need to know the specifics for? But we can imagine that Howard Stern probably takes tests uh, every single day, so that's how we know. And, you know, I, I do want to say one thing about this, and I was thinking about it, because on the show over the past few days, we've talked about the issue of aging gracefully, and I have been uh, critical of Madonna, uh, who's, who's around the same age. She's 65. Howard Stern's almost 70 or just turned 70 or whatever. And I've been critical of Madonna for good reason because she is humiliating herself by refusing to age gracefully and trying to pretend that she's still 25 when she's really 65. But uh, I, think, I think in fairness, we should point out that there are other ways to age poorly. And Howard Stern gives us Another example, he has aged very poorly. Um, he is not aging gracefully at all. And it's got nothing to do with how he dresses. As far as I know, he dresses like a normal person. And thank God he isn't up on stage anywhere, like twerking in spandex like Madonna. Uh, as far as I know, he's not doing that. But he has aged poorly because as he gets older, the only thing he cares about is self-preservation. He's terrified of his age. He's, he's terrified of his, of his impending death. He's terrified of the inevitable. And so he's 70 years old, locking himself away in his house so he doesn't get a cold. And then he gets it anyway. Hiding from the world so that he can prolong his own existence just a little bit longer. And it's not just physical, uh, you know, there's, there's the physical self-preservation, which for some people as they get older become, again, a form of not aging gracefully, becomes a, 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 even more of an obsession. But he's also become a, 
Um, there's also the kind of economic self-preservation. He's become, Howard Stern has a, a watered-down, neutered, pale imitation of his past self. He stopped taking any sorts of risks, which includes the risks that you might take with ideas and content that you put out into the world. And he's, you know, he's become woke and uber liberal and turned into this, this neutered dog, whimpering and whining and, and begging for treats from the left. And I'm not, when I say that, you know, I'm not saying that Stern uh, should still be acting the way that he did back in the 90s. Or, or saying all the same things, or uh, you know, a lot of the stuff that he said and did back in the '90s was truly objectionable. Like when he was when he, when he was uh, perving after the Olsen twins when they were 13 or 14 or whatever. Um, so it's not that he should continue doing that, or when his whole show was just bringing in uh, women and having them get naked. Uh, the point isn't that he should still be doing that. It's that even as you get older, you can find other ways, better ways, to. Uh, be innovative and push the boundaries and be interesting. And instead he has collapsed in on himself and turned into this pathetic, sterile creature because he doesn't want to lose money. He doesn't want to lose invitations to the cocktail parties, even though he's not going to them because he's afraid of COVID. Uh, and he, he's clinging on to everything pathetically until death takes him, which, which it will, as it will for all of us. All right. Speaking of clinging to things pathetically, the Today Show has a report about the hot new consumer product on the market that uh, everybody is raving about, apparently. This, this is all completely news to me. I'm not even pretending to be out of the loop to be cool or something. I really didn't even know. I, I, I didn't know that this was a thing. Apparently, it's a thing. There's a, a cup, um, a new cup. Actually, it's not a new cup. It's a cup brand that's been around for 100 years, but recently... People are very, very uh, determined to get their hands on this particular cup. Here's the Today Show with the report. The hot gift drawing screams and sobs of joy. Uh, she was and all this hysteria over a cup. I got a Stanley! The Stanley Quencher Cup, that is. Sold in over 100 different colors, the $45 reusable bottles are flying off shelves. The hashtag Stanley Cup racking up 6.7 billion views on TikTok with videos of fans collecting them, decorating them, naming them, even camping out for them. So it's almost 3 o'clock in the morning. People lining up overnight at Starbucks and Target stores to snag a limited edition version. I don't buy it blue. Aaliyah and Sarai Dives Cups runneth over after unwrapping theirs on Christmas morning. Why are you so obsessed with these cups? So... Everyone in school basically has them. Usually I don't drink a lot of water, but like when I have this cup, I drink like more water. Believe it or not, the Stanley brand has been around for more than a century. These cups used to be favored among construction workers, but in 2017, after a popular mommy blog posted about them, the company introduced new pastel colors and sales skyrocketed from 73 million in 2019 to 750 million last year. Stanley's CEO spoke to CNBC's Make It. So it was a slow build over many months. And then you could see that the waiting lists began to grow. Adding to the hype, viral videos of the cup's apparent indestructibility, like this one that survived a car fire. Well, that's good. I mean, it's important to have a cup that can survive a car fire. I mean, 
You yourself probably won't survive the car fire, but at least your cup will be okay, and that's all that matters. Your cup will survive. Your cup will live on to tell your story through the ages, I guess. So this is a new sensation. It's an insulated cup. Um, I mean, that's all it is. It's an insula- there are millions of insulated cups on the market. They're all the same. The, the Stanley Cup is not functionally different from any other insulated cup. But this is the one that everybody wants right now. And why do they want it? Uh, they don't know. They, they, uh, they, they couldn't tell you. Um, but they'll camp out overnight for it. They'll camp out overnight for a cup. And they want it because everyone else has it, which, which by the way, from, from a, a child, as we saw in the Today Show report, you know, asking children why they want the cup, for a child to say, oh, I want it because all my friends have it. Like, that is understandable from a child. Now, what I don't understand, first of all, is like, how... What's the background? I always want to know what's what's going on behind this. What's the behind the scenes story for how those two random uh, little girls ended up on the Today Show to talk about their cups? Like, I, I assume a Today Show producer would have had to contact those girls' mother and say, "Oh, we can we have your kids on the show to talk about their cups?" Um, so I don't and I don't know why you'd agree to that as a parent, but in any in any event. Uh, it's one thing for children. It's another thing for adults. But this is what they're doing, and they're waiting in long lines for it. Uh, and there, there are there are a lot of videos like this. So here's one of a very long line of people at Target waiting for. Apparently, it's a specifically a pink Stanley Cup. They all want a, a pink cup. Is the is the one that everyone wants the most. Even guys, even 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 men want the pink cup. And then an argument breaks out when a group of young guys who, again, for some reason, want a pink cup. Uh, and they cut in line, and it starts an argument. And let's watch this. They're like you. Yeah. Okay. Keep talking. This is gonna go mega viral. <laughs> so these two got these three cut in line behind the rest of these people who are all here waiting. So I'm just gonna protect the collectors and the people who rightfully get here. Bye. So. Line etiquette. If you oh, wait, it doesn't matter. She's gonna bring out the video proof, and that's what's gonna go on. It's good. So it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter to me. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just here to advocate for the people who are waiting. You can tell me anything you want. It's good. We have a line judge here. No, I'm not a line judge. I'm just, I'm just a decent human being. I'm a decent human being who waited, and I no, I heard this gal behind you wait a long time, and she was unhappy. If you guys want to watch this jokester on live, Ray of Sunshine on TikTok. Uh, I, I hate everything about this. This is everything I hate altogether. You got a bunch of mindless morons waiting in line for some consumer product. They're at Target. You got a guy cutting in line. You've got a woman taking a video bragging that it's going to go mega viral. Everything. Now, normally I would say that line cutters are the scum of the earth and deserve to have their voting rights taken away. Except in this case, which they do, but in this case, everyone in that line should have their voting rights taken away. Now, I know that I, I say this about a lot of different people that should have their voting rights, because there are a lot of people that should have their vote. There should only be like five people in this country that have the right to vote at this point. Um, but but th- at least we could start here. Like if I was in charge, I would just show up anywhere they're selling a Stanley Cup, I, anybody in line, I'd say, okay, what's your name? You can't vote anymore. You're done. You're banished 
for up. You'd never, you're never allowed to vote again for the rest of your life because you're wait. Like, maybe if there are two people, like, if you're waiting in line and there's two people and you're waiting in a line that's three people long, I could accept that. But you go to the end of that line, like, how do you, you walk in and you see that line. How do you not just immediately turn around and say, oh, the line's this long for a cup? I'm not going to wait this line. And then you say to yourself, okay, you know what? I'll, I'll do this. This will, be, this will be my day. I'll spend my day doing this. Um, and those cups, by the way, are all like 50 bucks. I looked it up. Unless you get them on the secondary market for $10,000. So we've got inflation. We have people that are having trouble making ends meet. Uh, the economy's in the toilet. And yet, people are also spending 50 bucks a pop on a trendy cup. And the thing is, if you were to ask any of the people standing in that line, you look at all the dead-eyed and dazed people in any of these lines waiting for the Stanley Cup, none of them would be able to explain why they want that particular cup. If you went up to them and said, what are you waiting in this line for? Oh, I want the Stanley Cup. Why that cup? What do you need that cup for? Uh, I don't know. It's a cup. They, They don't even seem excited about the cup. They're not standing there with wild anticipation for their treasured cup. They're just there. It's almost business-like, as if they're required by law. It's like you, you'd think that was a line at the DMV. You'd think that people are required to be there by law, but they're not. They've decided to spend their day doing this for a cup. What would a Stanley Cup fan say if I were to, because this is a cup that has fans, if I asked them to explain their fascination, what would they say? Oh, I like it because uh, it uh, can hold liquids and it can keep my coffee hot. Yes, and, and you can go to Walmart and find literally hundreds of cups that perform both of those functions just as well. In fact, the first function of holding liquids, I got news for you. Every cup on earth can do that. Find any cup at all and it can hold your liquids. Or it's not a cup by definition. And as far as keeping it warm or cold, that, that's an insulated cup and, uh, and uh, any cup could. Look, I know this is nothing new, these pointless trends and consumer obsessions. Uh, I lived through the Beanie Baby fr- craze of the 90s, okay? So uh, I know all about it, but it is, uh, it is, it's just pathetic even so. A cup is a cup, so get over it. That is, unless it's a leftist tears tumbler or a uh, Sweet Baby Gang insulated mug. Now, these are real high-quality cups. Now, these are cups that you should pay a premium for, and you will if you go to dailywire.com shop, which you should right now. Let's get to what was Walsh wrong. Julian says, when you got to the scientists pull data out of their asses, you have no idea how much you embarrassed yourself. Please invite someone to show you uh, to your show so you can debate on the issues you can't understand. I think you should stick to fighting against LGBT insanity. Uh, Julian, that's fair. Uh, you're right. I, I do apologize. I said that scientists are pulling uh, climate change data out of their asses. The, 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 the you know, alleged information that says that the world is the warmest it's been in 125,000 years, which they couldn't possibly know. But in fairness, I don't know for a fact that they extracted this information directly out of their own ass. Uh, I don't know that. That was that was really my theory. I think I said that. That was my best guess. Um, but you're right. It's an inappropriate guess. 
And I'm sorry for that. It's because it's possible that they got this information by digging directly into a literal pile of So they could have gotten it that way. Um, so they got it out of their own ass. They got it out of a pile of I, You know, there's a, a few different places, a few different sources of this kind of information. Um, and uh, I guess we, did, we just don't know for sure. But if I had an expert, if I was able to ask an expert, I would certainly ask them that uh, question. Uh, let's see. Matt doesn't realize that in most discussions, he's the random guy, the boyfriend's friend, who brings zero expertise and training to the table. He gets that the boyfriend's friend should be easily beaten, but doesn't see how easily beaten he is by experts. First of all, what do you mean beaten? Like beaten in what way? What's, what's the competition? When I offer my perspective and opinion about topics, uh, what... What competition am I in? And also, it, it's interesting that whatever topic I'm talking about, um, and you said, well, you shouldn't have an opinion about that unless you're an expert. I could pretty much guarantee that you yourself have an opinion on that topic and are more than willing to share it with anyone. So you can do it, but other people can't unless they're a quote-unquote expert. In fact, even your opinion that only the experts should talk about that, that is also an opinion that I could argue you don't have the expertise to share. Um, but of course, the, the biggest problem is that when you talk about experts these days, uh, you know, I, I wish that meant something. I do. I, I wish that saying the word expert had some meaning and some weight behind it, but it just doesn't. Because when you have the quote-unquote experts claiming that they can, for example, read a tree ring and tell you exactly what the temperature was on uh, July 12th, uh, 45,000 BC, like when the experts are saying that, it means you can't trust them. And when the experts are telling you that men can have babies and so on, uh, it just means that uh, the experts don't really mean anything anymore. Finally, Jen says, I did not do track and field in high school. For two years in a row, I was the fastest person in my high school, even the guys who did track and field and football. Stop acting like a woman can't possibly be better at a sport. <laughs> no, you weren't, Jen. That, no, you weren't. Uh, fact, that's not true. Yeah, sure. You were the, you were some, you didn't even run track. You were a girl in high school and you could beat every male athlete in your, did, did they all race you? You didn't even run track. How do you know that you're the fastest? Did they all line? Did you have some kind of school-wide race with every single uh, boy in the school and you beat them all? Is that how it worked? Uh, now, look, Jen, I, I, I never said that a woman can't possibly be better at a sport. Of course a woman can be better. What do you mean better at it? Like a woman can be better than someone else in a sport. A woman can even be better than a man in a sport. Serena Williams uh, would beat me in tennis. It wouldn't even be close. I've never played tennis in my life. I've never watched it. I don't even know how to play. Uh, so anyone, I mean a 12-year-old who, who has played tennis in an organized way, for more, a couple of years, would beat me easily. Uh, so yes, there's plenty of women that could beat plenty of other men. What we're talking about, though, is on average, you know, on average, who is faster, who is stronger. Well, there's just nothing to talk about there. It's a fact that men on average are faster and stronger. And when you look at, when you do a one-to-one -one comparison and you look at the top athletes among men in a particular sport and you compare them to the top athletes among women in a particular sport, uh, and, and, and you look at any data point to compare them, you'll find that the men are 
vastly superior to the women in those sports. Except for you, because you could beat every single person in your high school in a race. Sure you could. You know, we here at The Daily Wire understand biology. We know that there are only two sexes, and we're not afraid to say it, but some of our loyal customers pointed out a flaw in our Jeremy shop. We only cater to one of them, and Jeremy's Razors is all about equal opportunity to shop the woke-free economy. So that's why we have Jeremy's Razors for women, because women deserve the same quality woke-free blades as men. When God makes a, a new sex, Jeremy's will make a new razor. Two sexes, two razors, plus... We have a line of personal care products for our better halves, including moisturizing shave cream, lotion, body wash, and deodorant. Ladies, go to jeremysrazors.com to get your Jeremy's Razors and personal care product today. Now let's get to our daily cancellation. Well, you probably remember the alleged musical artist Lil Nas X, real name Montero Lamar Hill. Uh, He came onto the scene five years ago, marketing himself primarily to young children, performing at elementary schools and singing duets with Elmo. Then, after going out of his way to amass this audience of minors, Hill switched course dramatically and came out as gay and then started releasing ridiculously vulgar and graphically sexual songs and videos. Uh, Only a year after dancing on stage with the Sesame Street gang, Hill put out a music video where he performs a lap dance on Satan. So that kind of gives you an idea of the pivot here. There is, of course, nothing especially new and certainly nothing interesting about a pop star who makes obscene and deviant and stupid music. But Hill set himself apart as an especially creepy, predatory scumbag by taking the time to lure in an audience of elementary-aged children before making the pivot to the obscene and deviant and stupid stuff. Well, I should amend that, I guess, because his original single, uh, Old Town Road, was definitely extremely stupid, but it wasn't overtly deviant or obscene. He saved that rebrand for later. And now Lil Nas X has reemerged, promising a new single that will be released on Friday titled J. Christ. As you've already predicted, given the title, Hill is uh, going the sacrilege route this time around as he desperately begs for our our attention. In the lead-up to uh, his crappy song coming out, He's put out a bunch of blasphemous images and promos. Uh, In one ad, he's uh, seen crucified on a cross. Here's what that looks like. So there's that. In another, he is again dressed as Jesus while scarfing down the Eucharist and taking shots of communion wine. And then once again, he's uh, on the cross, as you can see in this promo image, uh, where he's uh, on a cross being hoisted uh, up. Uh, Don't worry, though, as the media insists, Lil Nas X is not trying to make a mockery of Jesus. Uh, Just because he's mocking Jesus doesn't mean he's trying to make a mockery of Jesus, you see. People.com reports, Lil Nas X is leaning back into biblical imagery for his new era. On Monday, the Grammy winner unveiled the cover artwork for his upcoming single, J. Christ, featuring himself resembling Jesus on a cross, shortly before clarifying he's not looking to offend any religious group with the photo. Quote, my new single is dedicated to the man who had the greatest comeback of all time, wrote Lil Nas X, 24 on X, uh, alongside the J. Christ cover image and announcement. The Old Town Road performer then quoted a previous post claiming that his upcoming single features a very beloved pop star and said it was God. After reposting some fans' tweets expressing excitement for his new music, Lil Nas X took to the social media platform once again, less than an hour after sharing the J. Christ single cover, to clarify his motive. 
The crazy thing is nowhere in the picture is a mockery of Jesus. He wrote, Jesus' image is used throughout history and people's art all over the world. Little Nas X continued, I'm not making fun of S. Y'all just got to keep trying to gatekeep a religion that was here before any of us were even born. Shut the F up. Well, yes, it's true. Jesus has been depicted in art for hundreds of years, but historically, he was depicted in a way meant to venerate and glorify him. There was a lot of Jesus-related art being produced in Europe in the 14th century, for example. But here's the thing. If you went back in time and showed people an image of yourself on the cross in 14th century Europe, or, or you showed yourself pounding shots of communion wine, well, you're going to have to explain that to the Inquisition, and uh, it's probably not going to go well for you. And that's because this is obviously meant to ridicule Christianity and blaspheme Christ. And that's why, you know, when, when I say that uh, it won't go well for you, I mean that you'll be burned at the stake, just to be clear. But Hill, as usual, even though he, uh, you know, we don't have uh, an inquisition these days, lacks the courage to stand by his own provocations. He's a coward along with, with being a sacrilegious degenerate, and so he always does these things with a little bit of a wink and a nod and a little bit of a, well, uh, I didn't really mean it offensively. Now, speaking of cowardice, uh, that's the first point that many people uh, make about this sort of thing. The first thing you can't help but notice is that whenever one of these pitiful attention whores decides to grasp for relevance by blaspheming a religion, they always choose the same religion. You know, if you get all of your information about the world from Hollywood films and pop music, you might come to the conclusion that there's only one religion that exists on the entire planet because there's only one that attracts their mockery and derision. But as it turns out, there are many other religions, including ones with billions of adherents. Yet these spineless frauds who want to be seen as bold and transgressive are very careful to only transgress the one world religion that you can get away with transgressing. The one you're allowed to disrespect while still being celebrated in the mainstream and accepted by our cultural elites and everything else. You know, there's one religious group that you are allowed to offend without suffering any consequence whatsoever. And these brave and daring artists are very careful to stay safely inside that particular box. Why is that? Well, first, because people like Hill are, again, fraudulent cowards. They want to build a transgressive brand without doing or saying anything that actually is transgressive in our culture. You know, I'm not sure there's much value in being shocking and offensive just for the sake of being shocking and offensive, but I know for sure that there's absolutely zero value in pretending to being shocking and offensive while studiously avoiding doing anything that our society actually deems shocking and offensive. You know, it's one thing to be a shock jock. It's another thing to be a neutered, ballless little puppy pretending to be a shock jock. And that's the category that Lil Nas X falls into. But I must admit, uh, we as Christians are not blameless here. The other reason that Christianity is the only mockable religion is that we have allowed it to be the only mockable religion. You know, Hill will dress up like Jesus and pretend to be crucified, making a parody out of our most sacred image. But we all know that he would never in a million years even consider dressing up like Muhammad, for example. And why is that? Well, that's because Muslims simply will not tolerate that sort of disrespect. They just won't tolerate it. And that's why it doesn't happen. 
And there was a time uh, many centuries ago when Christians wouldn't tolerate it either. But then Christianity in the West became infected with uh, the disease of liberalism, and most of our leaders started preaching that tolerance is our greatest virtue. Never mind the fact that Jesus Christ himself never once called us to be tolerant, never talked about it, and in fact demonstrated forceful, even violent intolerance when he drove the money changers out of the temple with a whip. But that story, like so many others in uh, both the Old and New Testament, isn't mentioned very often by our priests and pastors. Instead, they preach about some new, modern, totally invented version of Jesus who, from the way they tell it, would likely be a corporate DEI administrator if he was walking the earth today. We have become a weak and impotent church that tolerates ridicule, and so that's exactly what we get. But whatever the reason for this dynamic, the fact is that there is nothing provocative or new or bold or interesting about somebody making fun of Christianity or engaging in anti-Christian sacrilege. Pop stars have been doing that for 40 years. Marilyn Manson was portraying himself as crucified back in the 90s. Modern artists were submerging crucifixes in tanks of urine in the 80s. You're not being subversive with this stuff. You're just jumping on a bandwagon that's been chugging along for decades. Now, it may be blasphemous and objectionable, but it's also played out and boring. And that's where we're left in our culture of decadence. These people have been trying to shock us with the same tired routine since the Reagan administration. And a guy like Lil Nas X, uh, he, he has no musical ability to speak of, no artistic integrity, no skill or talent of any kind, and so he relies on empty provocation. But even his provocations are trite and derivative. We're not shocked anymore by the profane and the vulgar, because we've seen it a million times. We're, we are swimming in this sewage every day of our lives. He's just adding another bucket, and no one even notices anymore. And that is why Lil Nas X is, again, today, canceled. That'll do it for the show today. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow. Godspeed. Godspeed.